Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome to the pod, guys. And this week we have Benoit, who is the collector and watch enthusiast behind the Instagram handle Movado Vintage. Welcome to the show, Benoit. Very happy to have you on today. Hi, uh, it's a pleasure for me, guys. Right, so we're going to go straight into it because I've got a lot of questions about about this. You know, as unfortunately Jacqueline's not with us again, but Jacqueline and I are relatively big Movado fans, and your page has something to do with that. And I think that's a great place to start. How and why? You know, why did you start the Vintage Movado page? Yeah, so I started the page um, during COVID at the beginning of the first uh, lockdown. And uh, I was kind of bored, like a lot of watch collectors and people who stopped working because of the pandemic. And uh, at the time, I was looking at vintage watches a lot and um, looking for new stuff. And um, uh, I did some research about Movado, and basically I was uh, looking at auction websites when I was looking through old past sales and uh, and listings and I just wanted to create a page like a portfolio where I could uh, put all these uh, watches I found uh, on different websites and blog etc uh, at the same place so I just created the page and then it got some interest from collectors all around the world and yeah that was the beginning of the page. Okay. And if you're looking at the auction catalog, there are a lot of vintage pieces there. What's so great about vintage Movado? Why did you not like gravitate to, I don't know, vintage VC or vintage uh, paddock even, or vintage uh, AP or, or like, uh, yeah, other kind of brands? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of like, all kind of watches, but especially watches from the 40s and 50s. And I'm a big fan of Patek, of course, Vacheron, AP, um, all these really nice brands uh, from the from this era. And um, I was looking at alternatives from uh, from Patek and Vacheron, and uh, I found Movado because of their designs, the the comp- the components they were using. Uh, they were quite similar to Patek and Vacheron. Um, so yeah, I started to dig into it. And um, and yeah, that got my interest. And I found really, really interesting interesting pieces. Um, yeah, basically it was looking for alternatives to Patek and Vacheron. And like mainly chronographs or Calatrava designs with Bruegel numerals and all these very specific features from the 50s that everyone is looking for. And um, and yeah, Movado is a is the cheapest alternative, but the quality is as good as the, the, the big brands. So that was the, the main point. Okay. So what would you say? You've been very specific in the period of 40s to 50s. Uh, what would you say the design language of that or what is the thing that draws you to that period of time as opposed to 60s, 70s or neo-vintage time, you know, in the 90s? 
Yeah, interesting. So I think from the from the forties and fifties, the design were really, really elegant, um, but not so round as the like twenties and thirties, where you had like basically uh, pocket watches, but for the wrist. So very round shapes, um, and and also handmade. So. The quality was really good, but not as sharp as the, the pieces from the 40s and 50s. And I really like first vintage chronograph with a step case um, and like very straight legs and stuff like that. So more, more like um, raw designs. And uh, I think from this era, you can find a lot of very interesting stuff. Like uh, there were case maker that did super good job on this with uh, cases with a lot of angles, very sharp, um, faceted lugs, and many kind of different bezels, and yeah, that's what I like in the in this era. Also, the dials are really interesting um, compared to later um, later eras. I really like the all the scales you have on chronographs or on more simple watches. Like the the different finishing of the on the dies, two tone dies, three tone dies, applied uh, numerals, and also hands are very elegant, very nice. Uh, dauphin hands and like furry hands are really elegant, and that's something you you don't uh, find in the watches from the from the seventies, eighties, which are more sporty, angulars, but less sophisticated i think i think from the 50s really like that was the the period where the you can find inspiration from the 40s in more mature way and um, the design are really sophisticated i think i think it's the first time i've heard someone use these terms dauphine and Fouy, who's actually french and then like <laughs> you actually sound so much better like it actually sounds so much better when you say it like I swear, you know, if you're in the shop and you said that, I think you've just Oof. made the price 10x. You know, just the way you said it. <laughs> but please come in, Long Long. I want to say that listening to you talk about why you're drawn to this era, a lot of the emphasis is on design and just aesthetics. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, would you say that you care mostly about aesthetics over practicality, whether something... Uh, can be easy to wear. I mean, a lot of these are dress watches. So how do you deal with this during summer months? And I mean, given a lot of these like videos which are circulating now, there's a lot of like robbery and stuff. And I don't think there's time for you when you're getting robbed to be like, this is not a paddock. Like, you know, so like, how do you deal with the, yeah, so one, summer months, two, the idea that this might actually draw attention to you, especially during these times. No, I think there's a like a trend to to wear more um, dress watches and small watches, maybe because of the robbery stuff, uh, all this stuff that's happening in the in big cities. People are going back to more discreet and stealth pieces, and I think that draw the attention on vintage watches, especially from the also sixties, seventies, but fifties, forties that were that are round, kind of small, and not blingy. Mm -hmm. Even in, in, uh, in precious metals, you can see 
a small round uh, yellow gold watch but doesn't scream like hey it's a $50,000 watch so I think it helped to to, to put the light on more on, on watches more from this era and um and yeah, I, I like to wear something a bit different from sport watches. Uh, I wore a lot of Rolexes, AP, and stuff like that for for years, and now I'm I'm going to something a bit different, uh, more towards the past, um, with a lot of history and yeah, just something you don't see every day. And I think the design from this era really interesting and nice. The, the cases they have a lot of details, the dials too. Um, you have a lot of variations on dials and case and brands, more brands than today. And there's not always the same watches you see online on forums, on videos, on Instagram. There's, the variety is so huge and it's, it's way more fun than like modern watches, I think. I have a follow-up question about this. So after you kind of like moved away from AP and the big brands, Vacheron, do you look at them the same way or it's just you're not able to see them the same way nowadays? Like, because now you've moved on and you appreciate this type of watch. Do you now see, say, like a Royal can go, oh, another one? Huh. I like to wear them because they're, it's really good watches, like even the modern ones on the wrist, it, it works very well. But yeah, it's more um, difficult to say, but... I'm getting more interested about vintage watches mm. for the, the the sake of uh, scholarship and details mm. and learning, mm -hmm. but I still like to wear modern watches a lot because they're so easy to wear, waterproof, mm -hmm. practical, accurate, mm -hmm. and um, yeah. But that's a different appreciation of uh, of watches. I think mm -hmm. it's more daily pieces, mod modern watches as daily and vintage watches as collection. Okay. I was going to say, like, with Lan Lan's question about being scared of robbery, you know, if I was a robber, like, I'd be, like, so pissed off if I'd stolen a watch and it wasn't worth anything. And the thing with the 40s, 50s is I think, yeah, there are different lots of cases, but when we're talking about, the, the, we're talking rarity, you know, it's very hard to find these things in good condition. But when you do... Most of the time, the differences um, are so subtle. You know, you, it's not like, I mean, if you see a Royal Oak K-shape from afar, you know it's a Royal Oak K-shape. If you see a Panerai from afar, you can know it's Panerai. When you see a Richard Mille, you know it's a, well, it might be a Hublot, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Muller. But you're still going to be good, right? Unless, unless you end up like picking up the Frank Muller as a robber. But um, with vintage watches, the risk is so high that, is it worth the effort to pick up a dud that isn't a Patek? You know, you almost, you know, you can't even say, oh, look at that guy because he's wearing like these clothes. It must be a vintage Patek or something. So maybe in that case, it's as a robber or a burglar or whatever, it, it's too high risk of catching a dud. Not worth the effort, I guess. Um, but that kind of goes on to my next question. Why are you laughing, Long Long? Like, <laughs> because... just in case there are robbers out there listening. Yeah. <laughs> Given an education, yeah. Like, <laughs> Given an education, yeah. Um, and also, you know, with vintage watches, man, real collectors have trouble actually defining if it's authentic anyway, you know, let alone a robber. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
But that does kind of lead on to my next question in the fact that, you know, I did mention that a lot of these watches in that period are very similar. And that you mentioned that, you know, lots of the larger brands, the bigger brands that exist today were actually using the same hands, dials and case makers from the period. Was this a fact that actually, you know, all brands were doing this or was it just the select few that were doing it? You know, was it across the board? Everybody was just outsourcing everything. And so the standard was the same or was it just, yeah, the top brands? No, I think back, back in the days, uh, it was very, I mean, the, the watchmakers were doing movements like watches, but just the, the, the mechanics. And then they were buying, um, the, the external components from suppliers and then assemble the watch. But the main, um, the main uh, job was to create the movement, to build, to, to assemble the movement, to regulate it. And that, that was really the, the job of watchmakers. And then you had like many companies around supplying straps, bracelets, um, cases, hands, dials, crowns, even like screws or stuff like that. And back in the days was really common to do that. Like everyone was doing that. Of course, you had different kind of finishing or level of manufacturing from these components, but it was pretty common. That's why you have a lot of um, unsigned watches because some small companies or individuals were just buying a movement from here, case from here, tiles from here, and just put them together and sell it or keep it from themselves. So, yeah, I think today the the trend is more to do everything in-house. Uh, big companies are buying back these companies from the from back in the days that were doing just one kind of components and and absorbing it in the same structure. I know Rolex, for example, they bought back a, a dice maker and case maker and a lot of companies around uh, the the movement uh, and um, yeah that back in the days it was a bit different and I mean that's why you can find very, like big similarities between brands um, Movado using the same hands as Patek or Patek using the same dial as Vacheron I mean not exactly the same but the same um, applied numerals mm -hmm. big similarities okay, so let's be a bit more specific here like how do you even know it's the same case as oh, patek yeah <laughs> and like and like who is that case maker who are these hand makers who are these dial makers that you so appreciate you know mm. who are they uh i really like um francois borgel so that's a case maker from the i mean 20th century that's made a lot of uh, cases especially waterproof cases and Vacheron, Movado, um, Mido, Patek used it, and many others, but I don't have all the names. And how do you know it's a Borgel case? So you have some specifics about it, like a, a crown that has a like roundy shape. Also, they have um, an octagonal uh, case back, screw down case back. Mm -hmm. But the easiest way to know is to open the watch and look at the inside of the case back and you have the stamp of the case maker. For the dials, a bit the same thing. If you remove the dial, so it's not easy, but you can, a watchmaker can do it. 
if you remove the dials on the back, then you have some marks um, from the dial maker. And also, one thing I use, like if I see a watch from like a big brand, Patek Vachon, who went through auction, and it stated that the dial from Sternfrère, for example, and you see the very, like the exact same uh, markers on the dial from Mido, let's say, then I assume it's the same dial maker because you can recognize the fonts, you can recognize the indexes, you can recognize like the, the different finishing, like two-tone finishings. And there was not many, many dice makers. So okay. I did the same for case makers, hands. I don't know the the, the name of the, the hands makers, but you can find the exact same hands with the same level of finishing on many brands. Okay. So what happened to, do you know what happened to Borgel and uh, Stern Brothers? Like what happened to those companies? Borgel, I think, uh, I'm not really sure about it. I don't know where he ended up. I know Gefrer, so the, the famous uh, bracelet maker, and also they, they did some case cases. Um, Rolex bought it back in the 60s, I think, about Stern Frere, um, know, who were making the dies. Um, it's the same Stern family as the owner of Patek. So they moved okay. to, I, I don't exactly know the story, but um, I think they bought Patek or something like that. And okay. yeah. So now this company still kind of exists, but within a brand that bought it or like did some fusions. Okay. So that company that you're talking about, that was the dial maker. Yeah. I actually read, I mean, long, long read the same book. Like there was actually a dial maker that bought Patek and they were, so you're saying it's, well, I'm assuming it's, it must be the same company then. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's still. Yeah, 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 exactly. And when you said it, I thought, oh, is that the same family? Yeah, yeah it is. Right, like so... the, the, the factory that made a lot of dyes in the 50s. So I guess they, and... they stopped making those for other companies then. Uh, that's a good question, I think so. Or right. maybe they kept the, like, they kept the, the factory on the one side and the, then they bought the watch brand on the other side and kept the both uh, businesses running. But... And like today, you don't have Stanford anymore. It doesn't exist. You have other ones, Metalem SA, for example, who's making dice for very like nice brands and independent. But yeah, it's the same story as today. You still have parts, uh, suppliers, but maybe not the same as, uh, as back in the days. Mm. Okay. Right. And. You know, when we talk about these Mavada, one of the things that you said was attractive about them was the price point. So how, how much are these things going for? I mean, we can find a, like a very nice small time-only Mavada for like around $500 to $1,000. And it's going up to a lot. <laughs> I mean, you can find chronographs uh, with in steel with Dragon numerals in very, very good condition for around $20,000 or more. With the ISO asking prices like up to fifty thousand wow. dollar for super rare waterproof cases from Borgel Frère, uh, from Tober Frère, so it's same as uh, François Borgel, um, like the same shape as some Patek uh, five six five. I don't know if you know this one, but it's a it's a Patek time only with a waterproof case, monoblock waterproof case, and Movado did use 
the same case for chronographs and time-only watches, but they made very few. And uh, uh, I saw some guys has a, who has a, this kind of chronographs in like pristine condition with applied Burgundy mirrors. And basically you have all the fit, like the key features of watches from the 50s in uh, this Movado. And it's worth a lot. But I mean, the, the, the median price would be around, yeah, let's say 2000, I think. So you can find a, really a lot of stuff in good condition, price range. Did Movado get like revamped, like bought over and then rebranded or something? Because if you just search now, there is Movado online, right? And it's the modern version. I mean, the font looks the same, but the the whole aesthetics is different. The dial, the whole dial is just black. So it's yeah, the same so, company. Yeah, so my thing is Movado Vintage and yeah. the, the era of Movado Vintage, as mm. I see it, is from the end of the 19th century mm. when the brand were started mm. up to the 80s when uh when they merged with Zenith and then Movado was bought back by the North American watch company and then they changed oh. everything. Okay. Okay. Yeah then now they they sat they they kind of like uh I don't know man they're not even they are cheap watches basically. There's just no yeah, yeah not really it's so different. Like yeah. mm. it's more like fashion watches. Yeah. Yeah. than uh, really horology mm. yeah there, there was a watch that <clears throat> i can't remember when it was brought in but it's basically a black dial with a circle at the top um yeah the museum yeah the museum yeah, yeah. and that yeah. got a lot of plaudits back in the day which is about i don't know right 80s i think is that is that right but not in the 80s time? uh they made it in the late 70s i think that's the yeah, one okay. i'm looking at i thought that was the re <laughs> like rebranding and like yeah like yeah, it was their kind of like oh. flagship and it, oh. it it's the one that yeah, a lot of plaudits, but I don't think it's really stood the test of time, in my opinion, anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you see like you it's wear, black right? dives. Sometimes yeah. you have black cases, black bracelets in I don't know, maybe not ceramic, but something similar. So it's so mm-hmm. different from yeah, which is we like, I think. So it's essentially yes, the answer is to your question is long long. It got mm-hmm. kind of just bought and then changed and revamped and different price segment and i think that's also um i talked to benoit about this in the prequel in the way that i think it might limit the potential of um, vintage movado amongst collectors because of where that brand stands right now in in modern day it's not that like if you look at universal Geneve, you know it's a dead brand it is not brought, being brought back um but you know those generally those pieces which you could argue, you know, a similar quality to vintage Movado, they have a higher level of price point and, and Movado doesn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's also because like when you look for information about the UG, Universal Genève, you, when you type UG on Google, uh, you see directly very nice watches from past auctions, from blogs, etc. Like a lot of vintage stuff. I mean, uh, only vintage stuff. When you look for Movado on Google, you see a lot of museum watches and modern watches. Yeah, because nowadays it's what it is. Like the brand is a, it's a whole different brand than back in the days. 
and they're doing they're on a different segment so in people minds i mean not from like uh, old collectors but from like new guys getting into watches when mm-hmm. they look for movado because they heard about it like just briefly they just saw like modern watches so yeah 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 i agree i i personally like the contrast between vintage movado and what it is today like it does show that you spent time one looking and secondly you not like for at the same time the fact that the brand still exists actually helps you know because you think oh this was what it used to be mm-hmm. right like but then the fact that you can like i've got one and i thought oh i've got one now it it kind of shows that you also don't care about what it is today and that you appreciate just good watchmaking right so it has that it's kind of a weird psychological mm. psychological thing yeah would you yeah compared to... sorry to cut yeah. in but what would you feel the same about like roger debris uh, uh vintage, you mean vintage roger debris yeah because it's beautiful right yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, ignore yeah. what's happening now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I would say that as well. Yeah, mm. you can. I don't know if you can argue the same case for like Cartier. You know, if you look at modern Cartier now, would you like? But it's close enough to the vintage ones that true. you can't really yeah, true. like. True, they haven't really. Yeah, yeah, true. Good point. Yeah, yeah. but definitely vintage Roger Dubois. Um, I mean, they're beautiful, aren't they? But even you know, the vintage Frank Mueller's are really, really nice. Yeah, they mm-hmm. are. Yeah, you're talking about like the early chronos and stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. They, they're very similar, actually, to the Roger Dubois, isn't that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, the, again, though, if you say, if you would say like a brand positioning and how, let's say, a modern brand affects like a, the appreciation of vintage, wouldn't you say, and that kind of sounds like I'm putting words in your mouth, but wouldn't you say mm-hmm. that Frank Mueller as a brand has fallen way more than Roger Dubois. As in modern Frank Muller has fallen way more yeah. than modern Dubois, right? Easily. So I think, yeah, yeah, easily, right? So when you go and get like even a vintage Frank Muller, yeah. I'm like thinking, ah, oh, fuck, it's still like, it's Frank Muller, you know? <laughs> but who knows, you know, you know, we, we, we sit here and trash a lot of like brands, right? And I'm yeah. sure, 20 years ago, they were doing the same thing. But yeah. I wonder, you know, crazy hours, will that ever make a comeback? Because that is a pretty cool complication, isn't it? Like what Maybe. brand? You know, it's, it's a really cool complication. Will, will it age well? You know, will, will like, let's say 10 years down the line. Will no, people like 20 be going, years. Yeah, 20 years down yeah, the like, line. Oh, you know, crazy hours. Like, don't you know what that mm-hmm. is? You know, because I think like a complication like that needs to be dead for about 20 years. And so that people could then come back and say, what? You don't know what crazy hours is. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think other watches have used this kind of movement. It just, the dial looks different. But then, so the idea is already used, but it can never be re, like rebirthed in the, this kind of like, with this kind of look again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean the torno shape? Like, I don't think people can take that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, we, we, we lot. I mean, it's, back in the day when I was in university, yeah. Frank Miller was all the rage, all the I, rage. I, I really wanted one, by the way. I really wanted one, and I just thought it was really cool. And actually, if you look at a lot of the vintage, the crazy hours stuff, are just like yeah. the one with massive numerals because the design uh, was crazy really hours, but that's really big. 
Okay. But but the if you look at a lot of the vintage shops in Japan that don't only sell watches, like sometimes they sell vintage uh, Chanel jackets and other like um, bags and stuff. There's a lot of Frank Mueller's there, so I think that was a huge market for them. But then even the Japanese people grew out of it. Yeah. Oh. You know. You know. There's that argument these days. Is like people that aren't into watches, they always go like, "Oh, uh, you know, why do you even need watches?" Uh, you know, because we've got the, you know, you don't need to tell the time because you've got your phone. Mm-hmm. I'm like, fucking crazy hours. Yeah. It wasn't the best way to tell the time. <laughs> it was a fucking massive hit, though, wasn't it? Like, it just shows that even back then, nobody could give a shit about telling the time. Yeah. Everybody, watches were a status symbol. Yeah. Mm, that is true. But we de- they definitely looked at the watch for real to check the time, though. Yeah. But it'd be like, yeah. it was almost the fact that you couldn't tell the time, that it was such a selling point. It's so weird how, yeah. how, our consumer things if you're thinking like a sales guy right he goes ah oh, this piece and then he goes ah oh, and the guy looks at it and he thinks uh how are you supposed to tell the time why are the numbers like all messed up <laughs> yeah and then the guy goes oh, this is called the crazy hours like look at it yeah and look as i turn the thing and then and then you can almost see the consumer go wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is so different i want that done impulse buy boom yeah seven thousand pounds a pop which is about, I don't know, 80K Hong Kong at the time. Was it? Yeah. Mm. I think they were about that price, right? Was it? I, I don't know. Yeah, I bet we're not going to get any messages telling, trying to correct me. Because <laughs> nobody knows. Nobody <laughs> no one's going to admit they had one. Yeah, exactly. Right. Anyway, back to this podcast. Sorry about <laughs> that, Benoit. We got kind of carried away there. But you mentioned that watchmakers at that time were really about making the movement and stuff like that. And you mentioned that you're a big fan of the chronographs. Um, I have kind of looked at those chronographs and I think, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, they like the M90, M95 um, seem to be very collectible amongst the crowd that are into vintage Movado. What's so good about these pieces? Because I've, I've looked, my personal opinion is I think they're a bit like thick, personally. Oh, the Movado chronograph? Well, it depends on the era of it. If you look at chronographs from Movado from the 40s and 50s, the early M90, M95, they're really thin, and the sm- the case has really has a small diameter from thirty to thirty five point five, and they they move on more sporty ones um, in the sixties, still with the M ninety five, not the M ninety, I think, but yeah, with a with a black bezel, black dial, and more like a diver chronograph watch, and these ones are really like a bit bigger and thicker. But the old ones are more similar to early uh, Vacheron and Patek chronographs. So what makes it so interesting and collectible, I think, um, first, the movement is an in-house movement made by Frédéric Piguet. So that's two things which is really collectible. One is the fact that it's an in-house movement. And back in the days, uh, even Patek were using the Lemania. So oh, there were wow. not yeah, many yeah. in-house movements. Yeah. Um, and also made by Frédéric Piguet, who's a like, legendary watch conceptor, watchmaker. Um, also, I think the design is really something about it. Like they, they did chronograph with super nice cases, Calatrava shaped case with a, a flat bezel, like uh, some early Pateks. Um, they made some waterproof cases with François Borgel, uh, very similar to the Patek uh, for, uh, 
1463, which is very collectible. Um, the dials are also like very well designed and with like something kind of specific is the, uh, the chronograph hands, the small hands are serpentine hands. So it's shaped like a yeah, yeah. small wave. Yeah. And this is a fun twist. And yeah, you have a like, large variety of, uh, of vintage Movado chronograph. But I think the main factor uh, is the fact that they're really close to very big brands, um, vintage chronograph that are really collectible. So it's kind of the cheap alternative to them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the, the nerd in me loved how you said 35.5 like you didn't round it up to 36 so you didn't round it down to 35. no i thought i thought ah oh, this guy's a real watch collector 35.5 yeah like you can tell a lot by this guy because he said 35.5 <laughs> all right you've graduated from just saying five seven eleven um so one of the things you say is that it's affordable obviously that's subjective uh you say they're going around 2k to 5k us dollars Mm. But to a lot of people, that is still not that affordable, uh, especially people that are just coming into this like hobby. Mm-hmm. Would you say that, would you, do you know any other brands that kind of, again, around that time period, doing the same thing, but are even cheaper than like Movado? Well, that's not an easy question, but you can find, yeah, I think Mido is a good alternative. We can find uh, some very nice middle watches, very nice dials, and waterproof cases also from François Borgel. And these watches are more around five hundred dollars, just like between five and eight hundred. Um, How about Tissot? Whereas, yeah, and Tissot are more known from for the chronograph, I think, back mm-hmm. in the fifties, forties. Um, they made really nice chronographs, but they are really expensive too because they were using the Omega movement inside. Um, I don't really know a lot about the, the time-only Tissot from this era, but yeah, I think one bread, uh, which is underrated as well, I would say Mido. Okay, good. I'm going to check that out. Um, so how rare are these things? How easy is it to get? Because I mm. looked for one and... I don't think it was that easy. And I, that, maybe that's because I'm not very good at waiting for stuff, but <laughs> probably a good half a year to, to, to three quarters of a year, I was waiting for a, one in good condition. And I, and I went and got the uh, Astrograph, Celestograph, uh, Movado. And that's, I would say, even a relatively more common, quote unquote, common Movado, vintage Movado. Like, how, how rare are they? I mean, it's easy to find some vintage Movado online. You you can just go on eBay and you have a lot of them. You can go on even Chrono24. I think there's some of them. But the condi- to find one in good condition, in like with the mean dial, is really, really difficult. Because back in the days, these watches were not like precious watches and people re- were wearing them a lot on a daily basis. Um, they were not uh, all waterproof, so the humidity were coming in and it was damaging the tires, etc. Um, you find many Movado with uh, repainted tires. That's quite common on Movado. Um, but yeah, to find one in really pristine condition 
unpolished case, even if I don't like to say this word, but in very good shape with the original uh, brushing on the side, etc. It's really, really difficult because it's watches that stayed in the safe or in a, in a drawer for 50, 70 years. So like any other brands, it's really hard to find. And you can find some on eBay from one uh, from one day to another, but it's really not common. And you can find some at the auctions, okay. mostly. <clears throat> did, you, did you see Jacqueline's one? Yeah, so beautiful, so poetic. <laughs> yeah, right. Like I looked at what? it today. <clears throat> the photo of it actually i was i picked it up for her and i was like oh i was like fuck <laughs> like so fucking nice yeah i saw it on, on Philips before before the sale not in person but in pictures as well it was really really like super nice because i mean there's some different features that are really different yeah. first yeah. the chinese calendar yeah which is i've never seen that before. unseen yeah uh, as well as the pink gold case, yeah. which is not so common, the black dial, yeah. which is not common at all from this uh, era, everything in like perfect condition. And I went, when I saw the the picture I saw she the posted on Instagram, well. the buckle, yeah. And when I saw that Jacqueline got it, I was like, oh damn, good, <laughs> like congrats, like yeah, respect. There's a just rose gold and black. Just seems to just bring out oh. this elegance mm. this this air about the watch right it just works yeah yeah even today you see a lot of like watches in rose gold and black dye yeah. because they, they took this lesson yeah, from yeah. the past yeah. so. so i picked up my watch around the same time right so i was i was really loving it i was thinking like oh you know mine's got the moon phase hers doesn't mine's gonna like just totally you know side by side it's gonna be a tough call I put it next to hers and I thought, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, when you think, when you see, when you know, when you just know, don't you? You just know, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, even the steel oh, ones okay. are really nice, but yeah, you can. There's this kind of, um, the way that condition of that watch, right? The dial has this luster to it, which just mm -hmm. like glows. And I just think, you know, where everybody's into, I mean, you could say modern Patek kind of, uh, don't you know what can you tell about a collector if he wears but and then but even like now vintage patek yeah there's such a huge crowd that likes that but you wear that like jacqueline wears that no one's <laughs> you, no one's gonna forget the same model there's unlikely you're gonna meet anybody with the vintage movado and it's just so discreet but such beautiful like watchmaking the lugs are so sharp um, yeah the thing is it's really discreet but when people notice it and they know about move about like watches from yeah. this era. They're like, yeah. whoa, because the details are just so good, especially on Jacqueline's watch. But there's many Movado with yeah. like very small and and super interesting features, I think. And it's all about details. When you see it from far away, it's like oh yeah, yeah, exactly. another chronograph, another time only watch from yeah. the fifties. But when you look further, it's like, whoa, the dial has different like two different finishing. These yeah. indexes are, are blued, like flame blued. Like this case is from this case maker, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I do get that feeling with people that are into vintage because people that even in watches, they look at, I mean, I've been there, looked at people that collect vintage and I think, I mean, you just kind of bought roughly the same piece, you know? 
but I think there's a much a bigger appreciation for the details and the significance of those details once you get further down this journey because I mean most watches are still you know circular shaped aren't they and it's what you do in that space in that very small space that really kind of makes a difference your, your eye just becomes very trained and, and just very more specific and honed but in terms of vintage Movado what would you say the holy grails are so we've mentioned like the chronographs which are your personal favorites but what other pieces are there that you think if I was a collector of vintage Movado which you are I would love to add to my collection mm, there's different ones I think one of them is the chronograph of course um, some gold case ones with really nice dials with different colors. For example, the black graphic with the blue tachymeter scales are really nice. Um, everything with Bregan numerals are really collectible and true grades into the Movado world. But I think the the best of the best will be surprising. But it's the early polyplan, especially in white gold which are the kind of the first wristwatches from Movado with a um, very interesting movement, which is in three dimension. I mean, the main plate of the movement is on three different uh, sides, let's say. And these watches are really, really rare because they made like, very few of them back in the days. It was really different from what people were wearing. I mean, was the still the pocket watches period and the polyplan was one of the first wrist watches and they made uh, different kind of polyplans with uh, rose gold steel white gold yellow gold also with different dyes very nice dyes broken mirrors etc so i think this is a true grave grave for for mobile collectors um yeah the polyplan is Polyplan, like does it come grade. under another name called the Curvy Plan? Is it the same watch? Uh, no, the Curvy Plan is a bit different. The movement is flat, but the case is rounded, like okay. a tank centre a bit, but the movement is flat. And the, and the, the Polyplan is really, the movement is in three... Uh, different planes, isn't it? Different, different planes, planes. yeah. yeah. And that, that is, that, I, I remember reading about that was a kind of proprietary thing that Movado did. They, had, they were the only ones that had this movement, which was in three different planes to mimic mm -hmm. the angle of the case as it as it shaped around your now in these kind of grails would you say in the era it was made in steel is actually the hardest to find or is it still precious metal um uh, I, yeah steel is not easy to find but i think platinum is also i think platinum platinum is most collectible but maybe um, i don't really know you, you don't see a lot of them so it's hard to say if there were more in steel, more in white gold, etc. But I think the platinum is really the best, in my opinion. Okay, right. I mean, if John Bo Goldberg is wearing one, it's probably <laughs> worth looking into, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he has yeah. some, I think, at least yeah. one. Yeah, personally, I, I, I also like the world timer, like the polygraph that can at the same time tell if someone's li lying or not. Yeah, I think it's a great watch. Yeah, um, super beautiful. Very close to Patek also. And yeah, yeah. Not, a, not a lot of them around. Yeah, like that in yellow gold. Oh, it's mm. I, I've, I've yet to see one. Have you seen one? Mm, not in person, but I know a collector in Paris who has one and I really want to see it. So 
I hope oh, I, I will see one in person. I would just have bombarded him. <laughs> I would have bombarded him with flower emojis and everything, you know, just to just to see that polygraph. God, I really, I love a world timer, right? And the thing is, modern world timers is really expensive. Yeah. So if you could find a vintage one, it, it just has, it's just more exclusive and it's such a great kind of romantic complication to have. Yeah. And I mean, that is like a, something magical around the, the world timer. So mm. especially in vintage ones, because there were like, there were not a lot of them. Yeah, sense. yeah, exactly. You, I always think, you know, where where world travel was just very limited at that time. I mean, it's funny because it's limited now, but um, you know, you wonder who actually bought that, like, to use as a world timer in that time. Where I mean, I don't know how many people planes were carrying back then, but probably like similar to probably even less than what a modern bus carries, right? Mm. So it must be someone of some importance, you think? But um, you know. When people are looking into vintage Movado, where is the best source of information for this? Well, where did you get all your it, information from? My information is coming from mostly um, auction websites. Okay. I did look at almost all the listings from the past auctions, and you can find really interesting information in the descriptions because they always always um, state which movement is it. Um, Sometimes you see the inside of the watch, so you can see the, the inside case back, where the, the stamp of the case maker is. Um, but yeah, mostly auction website, because you cannot find a lot of information on blogs. There's some art, new article that came out um, one or two years ago, very interesting, but the information is very limited on this. You have a book about Movado, which is the, um, the Movado history. Um, inside this book, you can there's pictures of really rare Movado and like example you cannot see anywhere else. But yeah, I would say mostly go on Christie's, go on Antiquorum, go on Sotheby's, um, search for Movado listings, and yeah, that's the best source I think today. Okay, and I want to finish on. What is the most common question you get regarding vintage Movado on your page? <laughs> Let me. And it, it can't be. It can't be the. Se- I, I mean, if it's like, is this for sale? That doesn't count. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I got some. Yeah. Is it for sale? But I, I state in in the in my profile that all the watches come from uh, other collectors or, or auction websites. Now the 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 question I got all the time is, uh, what do you think of my watch? And from which, <laughs> from which year is it? Uh, so they're actually approaching you for information. Mm, yeah, most information. Like, is it original? What do you think it's worth? But the, the yeah, the most asked question is uh, from what, which year is it? It's interesting, isn't it? Like, you can open up a page called Vintage Movado, post pictures that are basically reposted, the you know, other collectors' mm-hmm. watches, and then people think that you're an information source, a reliable one. Yeah, that's funny because most of the time I, I cannot tell the exact date of the watch. Yeah. Like I just can tell if the dial is original, not repainted, the quality, uh, the, the, the approx value based yeah. on is the case is yellow gold or not and stuff like that. But, yeah, I would I would I would have it a guess that Long Long's you know main message is will you go out with me for dinner? 
not quite like that, but like written in many different variations. And then I think, you know, Long Long will probably be an expert in um, AP mooncake boxes these days. And <laughs> 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 just mooncake gifts, right? Yeah, there's a lot of mooncakes coming. Just to put it out there, I have told most people, like, please, like, just give it to someone else. Because I just don't want it to go to waste. And it's like me eating everything. <laughs> and it's kind of weird. Like, all my friends are watch people. So you're kind of gifting it to, like, other watch people who also have the same one. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Right, Benoit. Um, well, that's been such a, a pleasure to talk to you. I think we could go on for ages, right? Because it is pure watch <laughs> like to talk. Which, you know, as much as I think the audience love it when we get industry titans on, I do think that they also really appreciate the down-to-earth style you get when you just just plain talking watches in a humble, like non-agenda kind of way. However, we do need to move on and we go on to the reverse round. So hit us with your questions. Yeah, so I would like to ask you both the same question, which is about uh, vintage watches. You have different features uh, on it. You have the design, you have the movement, so the mechanical part, and you have the history of the brand. In your opinion, which is the main factor, the, the number one factor who's affecting the, the value in terms of uh, money-wise and the value, the percepted value of the watch? Okay, I'll go first. Well, mm. I think monetary value is going to be the brand still, right? Because when a lot of brands are still making similar watches, as you say, I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of proven, isn't it? You've got vintage Movado, uh, vintage JLC, vintage... Patek, all using the same ones, but why is Patek like worth like two hundred thousand US dollars, and why is Movado worth, you know, when it's the same? The only mm-hmm. difference is the brand. So I think that's a relatively straightforward one to say. Um, clearly, the modern positioning of the brand affects the vintage market. In terms of my own perception, um, I would say that um, design, aesthetics, right. Um, whether a brand exists in modern day or not isn't like a priority, but it's a bonus. I think you almost, you do kind of appreciate a brand that has managed to have that longevity into modern day, just the appreciation of any company being able to you know, weather the times, you know, it takes, that's a struggle. And that, you know, I think a lot of companies face that and a lot of companies don't, don't succeed. Um, the quartz crisis being, you know, a clear example of that. But I would say design, I love Breguet numerals. I love a well-balanced style. That it's really strange, right? Personally, the vintage pieces seem to have the balance of the dial in time-only pieces, and even some chronographs, mm-hmm. much better than the modern pieces, right? You, you, you can, if you ever look, put them to side to side, and I'm not talking just about the, the balance of the dial, I'm talking in relation to the case and the lugs and the dimensions of the watch. There is a reason why that is more timeless than, say, a modern. And I would say this. If you look at Vacheron that have released the triple calendar watch in a modern way, mm. I don't know. if. And you look at, you know, a vintage one, which is also tripping calendar. It, it, it's hard to, to say that you wouldn't go for the uh, vintage one, I think. There is a balance there, which is... Obviously, you can't say the vintage one is because of contemporary look, but what you can say is that that vintage one will work anytime, right? And the modern one, is it something that you will appreciate in 20 years' time? Only time will tell. Um, 
so yeah aesthetics for me uh number one priority all right um God, it sounds like I'm, it's such a cop out, but I agree with everything you said. Like definitely the value comes with the branding and like the history and everything. But uh, same with me. I have to go with design first. I think even if you could understand in detail about movement, like you said, the same movement was used in a lot of watches. So what's stopping you from moving into another brand? So aesthetics is everything for me. And then in terms of what you said about like, how vintage watches were so well balanced compared to the modern ones i kind of think sometimes like the modern ones have no choice but to reinvent to the point that even they know it's out of balance but they just have to push it out there's no way that all these people who have like an eye for design who understand design like way more than us can't see something is off but they just have no no choice because they probably have like some kind of system where someone designed something and then they're like, wait, it's been done. It, the measurements fit this one from like 1950. So we can't do it again. And then that's it. And there's only so many times you can do like a re like a facelift kind of like remaster, right? Where it's close enough to the original one without people being angry. After a while, people are going to be angry. So I agree with that. Yeah. I agree that if a brand kept on rehashing old models, right, it sounds yeah. it just makes you look like a one trick pony, doesn't it? And then yeah. people think, well, what am I paying for? You're supposed to like, having said that, they've relied on the Royal Oak K-shape for a while, haven't they? <laughs> what I'm really curious to see, though, is if you look at fashion, right, even pants, like, like, do you remember in the 90s, people were wearing very low hanging pants? Like yeah, I was them, pants yeah. were really low, like on your hips and really, yeah, 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 and then yeah, now yeah. pants are like super high, getting higher and higher. Right. Yeah. 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 So if fashion can change so much, right. And then iPods can change, phones can change. When are we going to see watches change to the point that it looks so modern? It looks nothing like what we know of today. Well, I think, you know, if you go back to the time of vintage watches, right, and you show, showed them a Richard Mill, they'd be like, wow, wouldn't they? Do you think they would be wow? They think, wow, this is I carbon. Think, wow, this is really bad. Like, they'll be like, <laughs> really this is bad. really chunky. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Right. So those are our answers, Benoit. Um, do you have any yeah. comeback to that, or shall we go to the pump pusher? Uh, no, that was very interesting because, like, I asked this question because um, I did some research about it and I think I found uh, some more older collectors care a lot about the movements mm -hmm. because back in the days there were no much information and they were opening the watch. Okay, it's a value 22, mm -hmm. so it's worth about this price. But nowadays it's changed a lot because we all know more about watches and we all so a lot of different ones and we're more focused on the on the design i think than before and i don't know what wanted to have your thoughts about it i but, was yeah. going to say you said something like way early in the conversation that i thought whoa this is spot on this is what i've have always been trying to say but i couldn't put it into words why do i like modern pieces but i love vintage as well vintage allows you to study and to explore and it becomes a collection but my actual daily wear is still modern and a lot of it's like modern AP, right? Just because it wears so well and it's easy to wear. But um, going back to what you said with movement, 
I think, yeah, if you just generalize, yeah, younger people care less about movement. Unless I think people who are very into vintage, there's certain references they really care about movement. Like, I mean, just from the top of my head, if you think about, like, say, Calatrava, right? Paddock's Calatrava. People who say, okay, I'm going to start collecting Paddock, even though there's such a little difference in, like, the dial, I think, people want, like, the 96 movement, right? And they really care about it. And they look at the, like, they open it up, they check how clean it is, and just every little detail matters. So I think you're right. Generally speaking, older collectors care about movement more. I thought Benoit was just being nice. He was saying I was young. No. I wanted to see like... <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing I heard. I, I, isn't that what you said? Daniel, you're young? Uh, I thought it came exactly. out like that. Sorry. <laughs> right. We, we, we go to the pump push around. Um, right number one. Oh, so i forgot to ask are you ready <laughs> yeah i'm ready right you live in the south of france yes right? how good is that life <laughs> uh to be honest it's really good <laughs> there's almost uh... no rain uh very nice weather every day very nice surroundings to like very nice nature uh, the only thing is during winter, it's like a bit empty, and also we have a lot of wind. Empty? And, uh, what do you mean by empty? Like people. Uh, not much people around. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, sounds like. Depends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, are are you actually in Provence? Uh, no, no, I'm in Paris. Because okay. I went to Paris for work uh, this week, but yeah, okay, usually but I'm in actually... Provence. But usually you're in Provence. Yes. Okay. That and... is a source of huge jealousy. Um, <laughs> can we, like, next time we do a pump pusher with, like, a collector, preferably living in Hong Kong, can you ask the same question? I just want to <laughs> see their reaction. How good is it to live in Hong Kong? <laughs> just see what they say. <laughs> the thing is, do you guys, like, I mean, Provence, you guys have good food as well, right? Like, Yeah, super good food, super good yeah. products. Yeah. yeah like the the wine and, and <laughs> cheese must be insanely good right the vegetables the fruits are just yeah. grown does around it, does anything even yeah. go to a freezer where you are <laughs> <laughs> not much not much yeah right but out of those good things what is the best thing oh um in provence i think that's the weather for sure <laughs> because I was living in Paris for, for many years before. And well, that is you know, definitely, definitely the same answer that a Hong Konger would give. They yeah, would exactly. Say it, never. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that, that's a joke, actually, Benoit, because we're the shit in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking shit. <laughs> you have typhoons, you know, well, even when you don't have typhoons and it's quote unquote good, the humidity okay. is like ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like everything not easy from, yeah and then everything comes from a freezer <laughs> <laughs> yeah so in hong kong um you pay a lot of money yeah mm. for things that come out of freezer <laughs> and then in provence you pay a lot of money probably still but for good shit <laughs> yeah really good food and good stuff right tell us one more thing about the south of france or provence that we don't know that you know because you were you were you were born there right and that's where you've lived 
One thing. Yeah. Uh, one thing you don't know. Hmm. If you haven't been there, like the weather looks like very good, <laughs> but we have something called the Mistral, which is the wind that comes from the Rhone, which is the main river uh, across the southeast of France. And the wind is terrible. Like we have full weeks of wind with like uh, 50 to 100 kilometers of wind. And you cannot even stay outside for like more than 15 minutes because you get sick of it. And that's really shit. And it's much, mostly in uh, autumn, winter. Okay, that's great. I didn't know that. That's the I downside. Think I think you're lying though. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> oh, I think it's worth a trade. I, I, I think that's, that's worth it, man. I'll take that. Yeah. And like, the thing is, winters are more cold sometimes, like most of the time, more cold than Paris, which is north of France. Okay, then he hasn't said anything bad about the place, so. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It must be be expensive to live there. In Provence? Yeah. Not really. (laughs) No. Okay, all right. Okay. You're not making it any better. You're supposed to say yes. <laughs> no, it's a really good place, honestly. <laughs> right. The next one. What is the best cheese, in your opinion? What's oh. your favorite cheese? Uh, my personal favorite is the Comté, which is okay. quite classic, but you have a lot of like different uh, kind of Comté. And the oldest one are my favorites. Okay. Okay. Wow. And how do you, how, what's best to eat, how, eat that? Like just straight up or what's the best <laughs> way? I like to eat it in a, for breakfast with grilled <laughs> bread, some butter on the bread and just a slice of Conte. Dad's <laughs> laughing because he doesn't know what breakfast is. He's never <laughs> had breakfast for years. He's like, what's that? <laughs> that is true. That is yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> But Long Long, you've just inspired Long Long to yeah, breakfast is like the main meal for Long Long. Yeah, so in this way, we are polar opposites. Every morning she is trying to like do <laughs> better than what she did like the last morning. And so when you said that, trust me, yeah, she's gonna Google like, that, yeah. that shit out of that cheese <laughs> and she's gonna try it. Yeah. <laughs> she's only gonna send me a message where she said that guy doesn't know what he's talking about <laughs> or she said like i've just died and gone to heaven it'd be one of those two yeah it's never in the middle <laughs> right number five something you want to achieve before the end of the year oh i did a lot of the stuff this year so it's quite hard but i would say um having plans like professionally for next year yeah I would say that. No more. All right. (laughs) Number six, your hero that you look up to that isn't family. Whoa, so hard. Uh, I don't like this question because usually I never know how to answer. It's all right. You live in Uh, Provence. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't have a hero, but a lot of people that inspire me in different fields. That's... I don't have like one specific person who okay. I follow. Dan, stop yeah. pointing at yourself. Sorry, but <laughs> so what? Stop pointing at yourself. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why he was having trouble is he was trying to pick between me and you. That's what <laughs> <laughs> right. Number seven. Your favorite movie of all time. 
Um, would be easy, but I really like James Bond. Um, mm. I'm not like a big uh, movie guy, but I follow all the James Bond, like from the earlier ones and to the last okay. ones. And yeah. Okay. And uh, number eight, your favorite book of all time? Well, uh, <laughs> I don't read many books, but I would pick a watch book because I, I have a small collection of watch books. And um, the watch by Alexander Barter, I think that's one of my favorites. Okay, are you also uh, collect, do you collect vintage ads as well? Yeah, I I love that. I found them on eBay, and I just follow like a lot of keywords about it, and I try to catch them. And I have maybe like forty to fifty vintage ads uh, from the thirties to the early 2000s um, about big brands and I think the, the old ads are really just so cool like well either well designed or mm. with good catchphrases and yeah yeah I, I know I, I love this yeah I have a lot like, of them in my room and <laughs> yeah that is cool compared to like social media marketing yeah these wow, way different yeah. <laughs> yeah totally different there's a bit there's a lot of um, thought you find in them yeah and i mean they had like so few way of uh, communication back in the days only yeah. i mean if you look back at the 20s 30s 40s 50s period they had just magazines basically mm -hmm. and one page or one quarter of page of one <laughs> big magazine so they had to be really innovative mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and also you know like that photo wasn't designed to last i don't know three minutes yeah as it is now mm. you know a lot of photos and instagram yeah yeah and and that image you just almost like watches is a bit more timeless you always find mm. you know mm. yeah and... inspiring like I, I i i think back to like vintage rolex ads you know where you see the saab and they're not very like you think about the angle the photo was taken it's never kind of perfect but it's kind of that the fact that it wasn't perfect, which kind of makes it really good, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're right. And even like uh, before that, the, the the pictures of watches in the ads were hand drawing, and all these ads are really cool. I think like you can find a lot of Movado ads with hand drawing watches on it, and it's I think like more artistic than the the later ones. Right, we're on to the last one the last message that you sent out uh on any yeah on any anything yeah um if you if you tell me like it's okay then i'm going to ask for the one before <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i send a lot of messages to people on instagram but like the last one will be uh with my friend Alex, uh, the watch I'm on Instagram about his watches, and I wanted to buy a watch from him, which is a uh, AP Discoverante, but he he won't sell it forever, I think. So <laughs> that was the last conversation. AP Discoverante. Yeah, the very round one, so, like the uh, one Ronnie has. Ah, uh, uh, it's it's the oval one is it round is it it's not one? oval it's very round but with the okay. very big bezel and the dial is very small in the center okay it's all right a disc, like a plate 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that ends the podcast. Did you enjoy your time with us, Benoit? It was super nice to talk to you guys. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's great. I hope we get to meet sometime. I really hope that you can take us around in Provence. Yeah, of course. Whenever you okay. want to come. Yeah, yeah. I'm not paying like for anything. Inviting himself to every city in the world. <laughs> like, no, it would be a pleasure. <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, I'm just really shit at making friends. And so this podcast exists only so that I can make friends and leverage things for free. Yeah. I'm Anybody that's actually like met me offline trip. knows that. You know, yeah. when I go to Hong Kong, I'm constantly sponging off Long Long. You know, like, you know, I'm always gone to the toilet when the bill comes. I mean, I've, just, I've just been, I've just been like brought up with short hands and deep pockets. Just can't reach into them. You know? <laughs> but it, yeah, it's been an absolute blast and a pleasure. And um, you know, I'm sure we'll continue our talks uh, on Instagram. So thank you very much for your time, Benoit. Sure, thanks thank to you. you. Okay, if you want to. Follow Benoit, you go to Movado Vintage on his Instagram and you can message him there. You can find us on our usual Instagram handles. Uh, I think you know them what, what they are by now. Um, and we'll see you on the next one. Bye. 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 As always, thank you for listening to the Waiting List podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.